makes someone great in God's eyes? We're starting into the part of the Old Testament where we talk about the heroes of the faith. What does that mean? And does an ordinary person have any chance of pleasing God in that way? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And those are the questions we're going to answer today in our lesson, Abraham, founding father and hero of the faith, and how we can be like him. What makes a hero of the faith? Though we will take much of this lesson to give an expanded answer, I'm going to give you the answer to this question at the beginning of the lesson so that we correctly understand the story of Abraham and actually all the characters we study study in the Bible. And the answer to what makes a hero of the faith, and listen carefully to this, is not only ultimately about what any person does, but that the person trusts in God, who is the ultimate hero of Abraham and everybody else's story in the Bible. Now, Romans 4 explains this well, where it says in the message translation, if Abraham, by what he did for God, got God to approve him, he could certainly have taken credit for it. But the story we're given is a God story, not an Abraham story. That's kind of the bottom line, the ultimate lesson that I want you to learn from this. But, of course, there's a lot more to it. So Romans and this lesson goes on. But in Romans, it says what we read in scripture is Abraham entered into what God was doing for him. And that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. We call Abraham, quote unquote, father, not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Isn't that what we've always read in scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as a father of many peoples. Well, Abraham was first named father, and then he became a father because he dared to trust God, to do what only God could do, raise the dead to life, with a word make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he could do. Now, this understanding is really important as we read through the Bible because often the quote-unquote heroes of the faith, the what you might call superheroes of the Bible, they're held up as paragons of godliness, especially the little kids. But upon closer study and as we get older, we see their flaws. And if we don't understand what I'm going to talk about here and what Romans just talked about, this can have a very destructive effect on our faith. Because though many of these heroes of the faith did incredible things, they weren't flawless. They were a mixture of good and bad. Moses committed murder, David adultery and murder, Peter denied Jesus. Now the point here isn't to bash Bible characters, but to always direct our emphasis back to the correct hero, our God without whom we can do nothing of spiritual significance. And from their failures, we can learn how they picked themselves up, trusted God for forgiveness, and pressed ahead to serve Him. 
What we can also learn from them is we see examples of how to please God, how to recover from failures. I know I learn a lot more from somebody who says, well, I messed up in this and, you know, this is what I did, whatever, rather than people that just go, well, I'm perfect. I've always been perfect and I don't understand why you're struggling. (laughs) We learn from the Bible characters. We also learn how to serve God through a lifetime of challenges and how to praise him no matter what. And, of course, specific lessons that we learn from each character. As we go through the following lessons from the Bible, I'll comment on how we can learn from them and how we can apply both positive examples and negative warnings in their lives to our lives. With this foundation, let's look at Abraham, the next major character, as we go through the Bible in chronological order. Now, to start, let's talk about Abraham's background. This is really important. It's historical and archaeological importance because Abraham's story did not take place in a galaxy far, far away. Many religions, and I've talked about this in other lessons on the history of how we got our Bible and comparing it with other religions, many of them have very fanciful histories. Abraham's is not like that. Our faith and the life of the father of our faith, Abraham, does not have a mythological foundation. It began in in an identifiable place you can visit today. Now, this story of Abraham's background and a number of the lessons that are coming up in the Old Testament benefit greatly from you being able to actually see the different things that I share with you, the archaeological discoveries, maps, things like that. Now, of course, on the podcast, you can't see them. So what I have done is I'm also taking these lessons and doing a video version of them. The link to it will be on www.bible805.com. Now, on the podcast, I'm going to describe these things, but please know that if you actually want to see the things that I talk about when I talk about a particular place or some archaeology or something like that, that there is also now a video for you. I've set up this entire um, YouTube channel. It's a lot of work. And um, But I I really feel that it will be very helpful to you. I'm also going to have a place that you can download the videos and printed notes and things like that. But that's, that's still in process. I'll tell you about it when it's ready to go. So anyway, just know that that's there. But now I'm going to jump in and describe what you're seeing. And I do hope you'll check out the actual video on www, the link to it on www.bible805.com. Now, about the archaeology of A lot of people have actually seen pictures of Abraham's birthplace, but they probably didn't know that's what they were looking at. And the reason is you've probably seen in the news or online or things like that pictures of U.S. soldiers standing on the steps of a reconstructed temple in the Middle East. Now, these steps and the form of the temple is actually built over the original temple itself. You can see part of the top of the original temple in the pictures and that was actually standing in Abraham's time. Now the discoveries and excavations of Ur are one of the most exciting archaeological stories of our time and I'll get to that in just a minute. But what, um, let me just tell you a conclusion though that I learned from studying this which I think is just absolutely 
absolutely fascinating. And that is after learning about Ur, what it was really like, I got a completely different picture of Abraham because I always thought, and maybe you have too, that when Abraham was called out of Ur, that it was kind of like it was all the Bible story pictures we see in Canaan, that he was called out of one, you know, sort of tent city of shepherds and stuff like that, and God just moved him to another one, and you know, for whatever reason. But that idea couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, what it was really like, it would be like a modern day equivalent, would be like leaving a big city, the excitement, um, all of this, the advantages that you would have, a big city like, say, L.A., and literally being asked to pitch a tent in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And the archaeology of the city shows us this reality. Now, let me tell you about the archaeology of Ur. And it starts out with a very interesting Indiana Jones-type character. This gentleman's name was Leonard Woolley. He was an English archaeologist, and he excavated Ur from 1922 to 1934. Now, he was a fascinating character. He'd been doing all work prior to World War One in the Middle East. And he had an assistant that came along with him that did a number of things. And interestingly enough, this was T.E. Lawrence, um, known also as Lawrence of Arabia. But the two of them went around, they excavated things and stuff like that. When the war started, um, they, they don't go into great detail in writing about this, but they say that Woolley and Lawrence worked for British intelligence. Well, during one of these assignments, unfortunately, Woolley was on a ship that was blown up and he was rescued and spent the remainder of his time in a POW camp. He got out of that and was just so fascinated with the Middle East. So he went back and in 1922 started working on Ur. Now this was about the same time that the King Tut expeditions were going on in Egypt and they got quite a bit more press if you will but his um, discoveries and everything in Ur were really equally fascinating. Here is a brief description of them by National Geographic. In the, and I'm quoting them. In the 1920s and 30s, British archaeologist Leonard Woolley dug up some 35,000 artifacts from Ur. And remember, we're talking about this because this is where Abraham came from. Including the spectacular remains of a royal cemetery that included more than 2,000 burials and a stunning array of gold helmets, crowns, and jewelry that date to about 2600 BC. Although now situated on a flat and dry plain, Ur was once a bustling port on the Euphrates River, laced with canals and filled with merchant ships, warehouses, weaving factories. A massive stepped ziggurat or pyramid rose above the city and still dominates the landscape today. Ur emerged as a settlement more than six thousand years ago. But the real heyday came around 2000 BC when Ur dominated southern Mesopotamia after the fall of the Arcadian Empire. The sprawling city was home to more than 60,000 people and included quarters for foreigners as well as large factories producing wool clothes and carpets exported abroad. Traders from India and the Persian Gulf crowded the busy wharves and carried caravans arrived regularly from what is now northern Iraq and Turkey. Now what's interesting to us is that one of those 60,000 people 
that lived during what they call the real heyday of Ur, when it was a bustling, exciting, urban, sophisticated city. That was Abraham. Now, the archaeology shows us more about it. Uh, they have some aerial views where you can see that it was this huge city, but it's dominated by this gigantic temple mound. And then they not only excavated the entire area, but also individual streets. And this is absolutely fascinating. You just got to look at the videos for this because they actually have some excavations of these homes that were literally standing in Abraham's time. You can walk down streets that he most likely walked down. In addition to the area of the homes, as the National Geographic quote said, Woolley spent years excavating this large area of cemeteries and in them is where he found some of his most significant discoveries and these are the things that you see in museums. One of them is something called the Standard of Ur, and it's usually pictured, you just get two side panels. It was actually this big box, and what was interesting about it is it has pictures on one side of a very peaceful society. There's music playing, and people are, are um, drinking, and just, you know, very peaceful thing. And then on the other side, it shows the warrior side, where you see uh, the warriors, you see them um, basically mistreating uh, prisoners of war, you see the chariots and things like that. So you see both sides of this society. Then they discovered individual items of just great beauty, very similar to what uh, you may have seen in the King Tut tombs, where there's this one thing that's very famous is this gorgeous harp, and the base of it has a bull's head with gold and black onyx um, that, that carved the, the face head, and then another one with, uh, again, gold and the black onyx that's called the ram in the forest or something like that where again you know huge amounts of gold were used to make these statues there was also a, you know thousands of artifacts of everyday life pottery that looks you know exactly like pottery today one of the things that I found really fascinating is they found a board game um, there's apparently something wired in the human psyche that likes board games but it looks just like some sort of game we would play today it's got little squares and drawings on them and then little tokens that you would apparently move around but uh, they had that and then of course beautiful um, alabaster, alabaster carved vessels and and golden cups and you know just uh, you know all kinds of things like that then um, helmets for the soldiers that picture that show you the the exact helmets of what it looked like in the pictures but these were pure gold um, beaten gold and then gorgeous uh, daggers and weapons and things like that also then what I found very fascinating and of course a lot of people comment on this too they have this beautiful golden headdress of this Queen Punabi where it has these golden leaves that would go across the forehead and flowers in the back and what's really interesting to me is her jewelry. She's got these giant earrings that look like they would be something that someone would wear today. In fact, there's a whole collection of jewelry from the caves, uh, or from the burial sites, um, rather, that when you look at it, it could be from a jewelry catalog today. The earrings, the style of the chokers, the necklaces, the beads, they're exact, the hairpins, exactly like what we have today. One other thing that I found fascinating is they found these little shells. Now, 
Now they found actual shells and then golden shells that were filled with powdered cosmetics. Pink powder, blue powder, really literally something like ladies would use today. But sadly, in addition to these fascinating, gorgeous things, not everything was beautiful. When he found these um, royal tombs, they were filled with bodies. Not only the king and the queen, but warriors, attendants, male and female, obviously slaves, animals. And it appeared, he um, from the way they were found, because they were found resting very peacefully in ordered rows, he did drawings of them that I can show you, and then there's also artist reconstructions. It appears that all of them died where they stood. And so he said that... Apparently, they walked into the caves, and um, probably they think were most of them were poisoned because they all had a little cup in their hands. And so apparently, they walked into the caves and took the poison and literally sort of dropped right where they stood. <laughs> Except they said there were a few <laughs> that were found with their heads bashed in. So apparently, not everyone was real excited to drink the poison. And I online, I show you some artists' reconstructions of how the tombs were just filled with people, with these bodies, with animals hitched to carts. And all of that obviously was some sort of belief that um, these servants would follow their masters into the afterlife. Now let me summarize what we've learned from Ur in looking at their archaeology. It was apparently an extremely rich, sophisticated urban society. They had a polytheistic religion. Uh, the huge temple dominated the skyline and the life of the city. But sadly, it was a religion based on servitude and fear. And one, um, a number of the things that I read about it is there's little record of a personal relationship with the deities. You served them, you feared them, but that, that was what really summed up the religion. They did believe in an afterlife, but it was one of dust and darkness and really little hope of joy. This society that, again, very sophisticated, lots of positive things about it, but also um, really tragic, ugly things, this is what Abraham was called out of. And not only was he called to a new place, but I think it was so neat. As I got to thinking about it, the religion of Ur, um, there was this overwhelming sense of fear and dread in it. But then I remembered in James 2.23 that it tells us that, remember, Abraham was called the friend of God. And he's referred to this in other places that talk about him also. And remember Jesus, when he was about to leave his disciples in John 15, 15, says, I've no longer called you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. What an extraordinary privilege. And how different from other images of a relationship with God in the ancient world. And, in fact, with many religions today where the religion is defined primarily by fear. But where we have the opportunity to be a friend of God. That's, that's just amazing to me. But not only that, keep in mind... This truly extraordinary city he left to live in a tent in the wilderness. 
And when you read about him, this is really interesting. I didn't think about this till the very end of the lesson, and then I had to go back and put it in there because I thought it was so fascinating. In Hebrews 1, 8 through 11, it says, By faith Abraham, now keep in mind all this about Ur. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The city with foundations. (laughs) I don't think that's entirely metaphorical and mystical. Before he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham first sacrificed his home and his lifestyle. Now God calls us to sacrifice in many ways, and I can't help but think there must have been times when living in a tent in the middle of nowhere was depressing. It must have been. (laughs) I mean, it says he was looking forward to a city with foundations. Now, this would be a permanent one, an eternal one, but there must have been something inside him that said, you know, this is this is not a whole lot of fun out here. The message translation puts that verse in Hebrews this way, that he was looking forward to a city with real, eternal foundations, the city designed and built by God. God may call us to a place, a job, a home setting that might not be all we want it to be, but we know it's God's will for us. And we also know that like Abraham, we can look forward to an eternal city designed and built by God. And in that city, there's room for us that even now, think about it, is being prepared for us by Jesus as he promised in John 14. You might feel like you're living in a desert now, but it won't always be that way. An eternal city in a home with solid foundations is being built for you. We have the location. Now let's get back to the main plot of the Bible story. Now we're introduced to Abraham following the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Now after God confuses the language of humanity and scatters the people, it then transitions into the broad story from from the broad story, excuse me, of many people down into the account of Shem, who was one of Noah's three sons. And it goes through Shem begot so and so and begot so and so, and it just now focuses on his lineage and it gets all the way to in verse 24 Nahor was 29 years old at the birth of his son Terah he lived 119 years afterwards and had sons and daughters by the time Terah was 70 years old he had three sons Abram Nahor and Haran and Haran had a son named Lot but Haran died young in the land where he was born in Ur of the Chaldees and was survived by his father the story goes on Abram married his half-sister Sarai but Sarai was barren she had no children then Terah took his son Abram his grandson Lot and his daughter-in-law Sarai and left Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan but they stopped instead at the city of Haran and settled there and there 
Tara died. And if you're, again, looking at the video, you can see how they went up to Haran, and then uh, Abraham continued down to Canaan. And you might ask, well, why didn't they just go straight over to Canaan? Well, you couldn't. <laughs> it's just this big old patch of desert that uh, they didn't really have a way to survive it with all the, the family and the children and things like that in those days. So you had to travel up the Euphrates River and then back down. But... Um, if you listen closely, though, to the verse again, where it talks about how Terah took his son, etc., they stopped at Haran, and there Terah died. If you are listening closely, you might be asking, wait, 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 who was called out of Ur? Was it Terah or Abraham? We thought the story was about Abraham, but the passage seems to clearly state that Terah, as head of the family, took them out of Ur. Why did he do that? What's going on? Now, the best way to answer this, as any confusion in the scripture, is to see what other passages say about it. And in Acts 7, 2-4, it says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. And then also in Joshua 24, 2, it clarifies it a little bit more. It said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father, Abraham, from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. These passages clarify that the call was to Abraham. He was was the one who responded and was blessed. What I just did is an important habit to develop when you have a question about a Bible passage, and that is to simply see what other passages in the Bible have to say about it. Google is really a great tool in these days. What, when I was studying this passage, I simply typed in the word Abraham, and there are over 300 mentions of him in the Bible. So I narrowed it down to, quote, key passages about Abraham, and then I read them all. These passages answered the questions and filled in important facts about Tara's life. Now remember, God is the, the author of the entire Bible, and this is what we should expect when we read it. In theological terms, this is what is referred to as the sufficiency of Scripture, and that is the idea that the Bible contains in itself all that is necessary for our understanding of it. Of course, we have to read it all for it to all make sense, but this is really an important habit for you to get into. Now, why do you think was Tara even mentioned? Well, we don't know, but maybe he had an opportunity to join in with Abraham's great adventure. He obviously started out with him, but he got halfway there and he quit. And with that in mind, quitting halfway. We don't want to do that in our Christian lives. So I want to just insert some verses on endurance. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run 
that you may obtain it. In James 1.12 it said, Blessed is the man and woman who stay, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God will give us strength to fulfill our calling because there will always be a time when we get tired, when we get older, when we get worn out, when we run out of money, whatever it is, those things are guaranteed to happen. But Isaiah 40, 29 through 31 reminds us, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And we want to be able to say like Paul did in Second Timothy 4, 7, instead of quitting like for whatever reason Terah did and then he died halfway to the promised land. Instead, here's what Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Think about, pray for application of these verses so you don't have to say at the end of your life, God called me, but halfway to fulfilling the call, I quit and waited to die. No, don't do that. Run your race and finish well. Now, regardless of Tara's role, Abraham's story picks up with these words. Now, note, their names at this point are Abram and Sarai, and God's going to change them later. But God told Abram, leave your own country behind you and your own people, and go to the land I will guide you to. If you do, I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make your name famous, and you will be a blessing to many others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. The entire world will be blessed because of you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed him, and Lot went too. Abram was 75 years old at that time. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, the cattle and slaves he had gotten in Haran, and finally arrived in Canaan. Then Jehovah appeared to Abram and said, I am going to give this land to your descendants. But before that promise could be fulfilled, years of life would pass. Abram gets to Canaan, and not long after that, there's famine. And, sadly, as there's a pattern with Israel, they go down to Egypt whenever there's trouble. Now, again, he's going to this incredibly sophisticated, advanced civilization. The Sphinx, the Great Pyramids, much of the greatness of Egypt was in place at this time. He heads down there. He Maybe he couldn't help but be excited about going to a familiar urban area with many of the luxuries he hadn't seen since Ur. But unfortunately, now we have a truly ugly incident in Abram's life where he asks Sarai to say she's his sister and not his wife. And so in Genesis 12, it tells us, When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Here's this guy who basically gives away his wife, and then he gets rich off of it. Well, he may have forsaken her, but God did not. 
God severely judges Pharaoh for taking her. Pharaoh realizes what's going on. He confronts Abraham and sends him back to Canaan. Now back home in Canaan, Abraham and Lot separate because the land couldn't support both of them. Lot moves near Sodom and eventually moves into Sodom. War breaks out between Sodom and the neighboring kings. Lot and his family are taken. Abraham apparently by this time has so many uh, people with him and working for him. He has his own private army. He goes after these uh these armies rescues Lot, and on his way home, a very interesting incident, he meets Melchizedek, who is described as a priest of Salem of the Most High God. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, or Abram at this point, and Abram gives him tithes. Now this is another example of God is at work with a people and with this whole group. I mean, we don't know exactly who he was priest over. We don't know any of that. But God is at work in ways that we, again, we we don't know the whole story at this time. But back home, Abram has a dream and great fear during the dream. God appears and Abram challenges God who promised him a son and he says, you know, I still don't have a son. And God tells him again that he will. But God also tells him that his descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. And then it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Hope against hope, no evidence that this would happen, but at this point in time, Abram believed God, and God counted that belief as righteousness. Unfortunately, that didn't last. Abram and Sarai get impatient, and they decide to help God out. Sarai comes up with the idea for her maidservant, Hagar, to provide Abram with a son. Hagar becomes pregnant and flees after Sarai's mistreatment, but at God's command she returns. Ishmael is born when Abraham is 86. Unfortunately, it never got better between Ishmael and the rest of the family, and the descendants of Ishmael are still fighting the descendants of the promised son of Abraham, Isaac, and the entire Jewish people today. So many problems caused because of that. The obvious challenge here is the danger of not waiting on God, of deciding to help God out if we don't think he's acting fast enough. That's why we need to be very careful when we feel God's taking too long. And it almost always seems like it is. God rarely does something faster than we think he will. We almost always become impatient. We don't know why things are taking as long as they seem to take. But his timing is always what it needs to be, and we must trust him in that. The years pass. Abram is now 99 years old, and God says to him, walk before me and be perfect. The per- Being perfect here means to be complete. Complete what I called you to do. This is so encouraging. Just because we mess up, get impatient, do stupid things, these actions do not cancel God's love for us or his plan for us. It had been 13 years and Abram was not forgotten by God. He's given the covenant of circumcision and both his and Sarai's names are changed. Abram, which meant exalted father, becomes Abraham the father of multitudes, and Sarai, which meant contentious, becomes Sarah, or the princess. And then, 
three visitors arrive and tell him God is going to give them a son. Now Sarah laughs in disbelief, but they assure her it will happen. And maybe as a reminder, her son later is named Isaac, which means laughter. The visitors also tell Abraham that Sodom will be destroyed. Abraham pleads with them, and they agree that if there are ten good men there in the city, it will not be destroyed. They go to Sodom, and unfortunately, there are not ten good men to be found there. We know that Sodom will be destroyed. Next, let's talk briefly about the ending of Lot's story. Lot convinces the two men, which we know are angels, to come home with him. The men of the city attempt to assault them and are struck blind. The men engaged to his daughter don't believe Lot that the city is going to be destroyed. The next day, the angels mercifully and forcefully take Lot and his family out of the city. Sodom is destroyed. Lot's wife looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. Lot, fearful for his life, hides in a cave. Incest with his daughters follows, and the Moabites and Ammonites are the result. The conclusion of his life seems sad and tragic. And yet, the final word on Lot is found in Second Peter 2, where it says, He, God, rescued Lot a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. God, in spite of all that happened, ultimately declares Lot righteous. Another example of God's grace, God once again is a merciful and gracious hero of that story. Now back to Abram. Once more, Abraham sins by claiming Sarah as his sister, this time to a local tribal chief he was afraid of. And once again, God intervenes, and Abraham is rebuked by the heathen king. But finally, after that, Isaac, the son of promise, is born. Ishmael is sent away. And now it's easy to assume that life would go along just really nicely now, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> In Genesis 22.1, it says, After all this, God tested Abraham. And part of us are going, what happened? You know, what, what do you call the things that happened prior to this? Wasn't that testing enough? I mean, the guy's 100 years old now. <laughs> you know, give him a break. But... That I'm sorry, I don't really mean to be flippant on that, but we can't help but think that. And now comes his really hardest test, because God says, Then take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Abraham obeys, but at the last minute God stops him and provides the ram. Now, why did all this happen? God knew, but Abraham did not, how deep his trust in God truly was. And we see that his faith was acted out in what he did. One commentator said, and I thought this was really good, and I'm sorry, I forgot who it was who said it, but he said, the purpose of much testing is so that we see our own hearts. You can't say God is all to you until God is all you have. You're never too old for God's testing. There's never a place where you think, oh, I can just coast home until I get to heaven. Just always, again, be aware, be brave, pray that you finish strong.
After this test, God shares a new name of His with Abraham, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. God first provided the ram as the substitute sacrifice for Isaac, but also this was a picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus. Based on his actions, God again promises to bless Abraham with many descendants, and not only him, but he says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you obeyed me. Now, my comment here is we never know how our actions will affect others. Often we think of how sin negatively affects others, and that is so true. But God can also use our obedience to bless those around us and those who come after us. Our faith can have ripples that reach out far more than we can first imagine. When we trust God, people see it. They remember it. It influences their lives. My grandmother had a great influence on me, and she still does, not only because of her life, but she gave me this little plaque, and I've talked about this before, but I I want to repeat it because it's so important. On the little plaque, and it's right here in front of me as I'm doing this lesson, it says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That had a huge impact on my life. And, of course, my my grandmother had no idea of that. She would have not even been able to imagine that one day her granddaughter would be teaching a Bible lesson that would literally go out all around the world to help people know Jesus better. She didn't know, but she was such a godly influence in my life. And this little plaque has always inspired me that... I want to do things for Christ. I want to do things that last. So remember that when you are around the people that you love, that you are giving them an influence that can have results you have no idea what they might be. Pray for a good, inspiring, and godly heritage. Pray your life will be an enduring blessing and act in ways so that that will be true. Now the remaining details of Abraham's life. Sarah dies. Abraham buys the cave of Machpelah. Abraham marries again a woman named Keturah. He has a number of sons by her, but Isaac only is his heir. He gives the other sons gifts and sends them away. Their descendants are the ancestors of many Arab groups today. Abraham gets a wife for Isaac, and we're going to pick up the story of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in our next lesson. And so ends the story of Abraham's life. But this isn't simply a lesson in archaeology or biography. Let's go back to our initial exploration of why he is called the father of our faith and a hero of our faith and what we can learn from him. What Abraham's life teaches the Christian, though ultimately all we ever accomplish is based on God, Abraham shows us that we must also take actions and trust God to be pleasing to him. James 2 in the message again sums this up really well when it says, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. 
Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, Oh, sounds good. You take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Use your heads! Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Wasn't our Abra- our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that weave of believing and acting that God, Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? So then, to answer the question of what makes a hero of the faith, It is the weaving together of faith and actions. The actions we need to take will be different for each one of us. Chances are, however, they will involve sacrifice of some sort, of times believing God when we can't see the outcome, and waiting far longer than we want for His promises to come true. There will be tangible actions to be done, as well as difficult things to believe. But keep weaving together, believing and acting. That is how to become a hero of the faith. And even more significant and precious, it's how to be called a friend of God. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson, Bible reading schedules, related resources, links to the video, and all those other great things at www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.